If you would, too, turn to Mark chapter 11 as we move on in Mark's gospel. We will be reading from a very dramatic story that I'm sure all of you are familiar with. Mark chapter 11, verses 15 through 19. Listen carefully to God's word. And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we may be surprised and maybe some of us are shocked at Christ's actions here in our text. We would ask, O Lord, that your spirit would be upon us in a way in which we see that such action was truly justified and adequate concerning the situation. Help us by thy spirit to understand how the temple, even of old, was always, always a forecast to Christ. Help us to understand the purity in the righteousness of Christ's person as the holy sanctuary of God himself. In Christ's name, amen. This morning we are about to complete the first rotation of Mark's portrayal of Christ's movement between the temple and the fig tree during his final week of his ministry on earth. If you recall, we looked at 11.11, where he goes into the temple. Then verses 12 through 14, we have the fig tree. And now we are back in the temple, verses 15 through 19. The pattern of Christ's movement can be communicated to us like a chiasm. Temple, fig tree, temple. In a chiasm, as you may recall, the key point is made in the middle of the chiasm. In this case, 
the middle is the fig tree. Obviously, the fig tree serves as the key as we look at the event of Christ's action in the temple. Christ's action with the fig tree is clearly a prelude to his action in the temple. Christ's action with the fig tree is clearly that prelude so that Christ is exercising his judgment, the fig tree, upon the sinful activity of apostasy and the barrenness that is going on in the life of the children of Israel. Oh, congregation, where are your eyes today? Remember, your Christian life is to live out of the text. If you are a disciple and you are a follower of Christ, you are to follow the way of our Redeemer as you live in Christ's spirit in each verse of the Bible. You are participating in Christ's journey with eyes of faith. What does that mean? Well, for Mark, it means living Christ's words, daily living by repentance and faith in Christ and in the arrival of his transcendent and everlasting kingdom. Yes, that verse back in 115 of this gospel is the key note for the entire gospel of Mark. So congregation, we must keep our eyes of faith upon Jesus because we are entering raging waters that can drown the life right out of you. Don't forget the revelatory injunction right before us. Judgment begins with the household of God. This is not the time to waver, to question, or doubt. Christ is before you, exercising his judgment upon Israel. And he is about to present his own body as a cleansing, atoning sacrifice for repentant sinners. Well, after cursing the fig tree, Jesus now enters Jerusalem once again. You recall his visit to the temple on the previous day, which is recorded in 1111, a verse and incident that only appears in Mark's gospel. In 1111, Jesus goes into the temple and looked around at everything. Jesus is observing the entire environment critically analyzing the priestly as well as all the human activity in the temple. Indeed, Jesus is deeply affected there in verse 11 about what he sees. He has come as the fulfillment of Malachi chapter 3 verses 1 and 2. Our Lord Jesus Christ has suddenly come to his temple and now in Mark eleven fifteen, Christ is practically and prophetically acting out the question, who can endure the day of his coming and who can stand when he 
appears. Yes, Jesus is now entering the temple like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. Malachi 3, 2. Like Mark 11, 11 in verse 15, Christ, Mark focuses our attention upon Christ as being alone and acting alone. Are your eyes fastened upon Jesus here in this incident? Are you ready for the drama? You are about to witness the only recorded act of violence by our Redeemer during his earthly ministry. We have heard throughout this gospel his voice, his voice of intense anger, but we have not seen an act of violence up until this point. Hence, we must be entering a very interesting and very important, serious religious act that needs our undivided attention as we look at this text. After all, as the perfect son of God, his act of violence must be an action of righteous, godly anger. The picture that Mark draws for us is that Christ was very observant as to what he saw the day before there recorded in verse 11. Indeed, he was deeply affected by the present environment of the temple. Mark immediately states that Christ entered the temple and began to drive out. The Greek here means physical violence, forcing to leave, casting out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. Verse 15 of our text. So let us pause right now. Since some crucial observations need to be comprehended and blend it into our text as we go forward. First, when he enters the temple, he goes into the court of Gentiles. That is, the place where things were sold and bought. Keep that in the back of your mind as we come eventually to verse 17. Second, do not overlook the following point that is brought out in Mark's narrative. Jesus not only forces those who are selling their goods out of the temple, but Jesus is also driving out those who are buying the products in the temple. Why is this important to note at this point? Because usually we have the tendency in this incident to only focus upon those selling the goods and stress that Christ is upset at those who are exploiting, exploiting others. That is, those who sell their products, especially to the poor and the widows. Although this is true about those who are selling goods, we must not miss that Christ is also reacting violently to the shopper, to the buyer. The entire atmosphere of the temple is filled with sinful corruption, 
both the seller and the buyer. The temple's purpose is not to be a marketplace. They have made it a den of robbers that includes both the sellers and the buyers. So note, Mark's description of Christ's violent action continues. The Son of Man overturns the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. Verse 15 of our text. You may ask yourself, what is a a money changer? What does he do here? (laughs) As pilgrims came from various countries at this time, they needed their foreign currency exchanged for Tyrrhenian coins, which was the standard currency of the temple. The exchange of foreign currencies for Tyrrhenian coins is the job of the many changers. If the pilgrims were to donate to the temple, pay the temple tax according to Exodus chapter 30, and pay for their offerings, these transactions had to be done with Tyrrhenian coins. Well, Christ overturns the tables where the money changers did their business. And he goes on to overturn the seats of those who sold pigeons. If you recall in the Old Testament sacrificial system, the purchasing of pigeons and doves existed for those who were poor to provide a sacrifice for the atonement of sin. Well, it is obvious that Christ is not pleased with those doing their business seated in the court of Gentiles. But how about the pilgrims, the people who now enter into the temple themselves to grasp the atmosphere scholars have referenced the environment here as a kind of thoroughfare, a mid-eastern bazaar, if you wish, a cattle market, in terms of an analogy. Hence, we see here that Christ also disrupted all the activity of the pilgrims. Specifically, as we notice verse 16, He did not permit those who were carrying their vessels, their jars, to go through the temple. You will notice in your version, if you have the ESV, the word there is anything. But the actual Greek translation there is vessels and jars. What is the purpose of the vessels and jars being carried by these pilgrims that come up to Jerusalem and to the temple. The people brought vessels and jars to carry their gifts and offerings through the temple courts to the priests. You may be asking, how? (laughs) If you're looking at the scene, you may be asking, how could Christ alone stage such an operation against all these people in the temple? Mark does not mention that he possessed a means of deterrence in his hand. For Mark 
in continuity with this, his theme from the beginning of the gospel, we are to view Christ's action from the perspective of his own authority, of his own power as the son of God. However, <laughs> however, if any of us here this morning wish to know if he possessed a supplement to affect his authority and power against the money changers, those selling pigeons and doves, and the pilgrims going through the court of the Gentiles with their vessels, with their jars, then you don't have to look any further than John's gospel. John's gospel. John tells us that Jesus was assisted by making a whip of cords. John 2, verse 15. So what is going on here that brings such a violent, violent reaction by Jesus Christ, the Son of God? What has made Jesus so upset here? If you have faith in Christ, what are you to see here and understand as disciples and followers of Jesus Christ? Let me ask you, even now, in terms of your own heart, as you're listening to this story, are you embarrassed by what Jesus is doing? Are you embarrassed? How do we explain as Christians, how do we explain his actions here? to self-proclaimed skeptics, agnostics, atheists, those who exist in their self-composed world of niceness, of niceness. For such people, Jesus is having a temper tantrum. He's lost his cool. <laughs> Jesus isn't even a very nice person. Remember, even his mother and family said that Jesus is out of his mind. Remember that in Mark's gospel, chapter 3, verse 21. The key to understanding Christ's action is Christ's own interpretation, his own interpretation and teaching concerning his action here, which is in verse 17 of the text. Simply put, the temple, the court of the Gentiles, those operating the temple, and even all the people participating in the temple activities have turned God's house of prayer into a den of robbers. A den of robbers. Both the merchants and the patrons are involved in some degree of exploiting, cheating, robbing each other disregarding the sanctity of the court of Gentiles. Yes, the sacred process 
of a Gentile becoming part of Israel's true religion, looking forward to the coming of the Messiah. Do you remember in the Old Testament what a Gentile comfort convert is called? He's called a proselyte. A proselyte. But in accord with Old Testament prophecy, this act by the Son of God, that is the coming of God himself, the Messiah, it should not surprise us. The drama of this day should not be surprising. Concerning the phrase, house of prayer, Christ is designated as the authority of God himself over the house and the temple, as he quotes Isaiah 56, 7. My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. However, as we saw earlier this morning, in contrast to Isaiah's prophecy, as Christ enters the temple, there is a clear relationship with the temple in Jeremiah's day, not Isaiah's day. The sinful abomination of Judah invokes God to say that his house and temple has become a den of robbers. Jeremiah chapter 7 verse 11. Well, Christ applies the same language to the temple of his day as he, in, as he observed intently the activity of his people, of these people. And we know what happened to the temple in Jeremiah's day, do we not? God brought his temporal judgment upon Judah and the destruction of of that temple by the Babylonians. Well, this time, God himself is present as the promised Messiah. And his statement for anyone who recalls Israel and Judah's history concerning what followed Jeremiah's comment should raise alarm and warning. That is the destruction of the temple and judgment upon God's people. As all of you may know, if we jump ahead in history for just a moment, after Christ's death, resurrection, and ascension in 70 AD, Roman forces will destroy the temple that Jesus has now entered and seize total occupation of Jerusalem against Jewish zealot insurrectionists. Meanwhile, return to the phrase by our Redeemer in verse 17 from Isaiah 56 Verse 7, that beautiful passage. My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. Herein lies the reason for Jesus' outburst this particular day. Notice three things here. 
First, the future tense. Secondly, the house. And thirdly, that glorious phrase, for all the nations. Isaiah is pointing to a day in the future beyond the temple in his day and its relationship with ethnic Israel, Judah. Christ here is applying the same text to a future reference and fulfillment to all the nations. Now watch. Remember to whom Mark is writing his gospel. He is most likely in Rome during the time of Nero. He is writing the good news, the gospel of evangelism to a dominant Gentile audience. Christ personalizes. He personalizes the house. It is my house. Christ's house, his church, his sanctuary will be called a house of prayer. Now think, now think of how Mark has used the term house in his gospel. It is very interesting. In the first section of Mark's gospel, The house is pictured, now see this, in contrast, in contrast to the Jewish synagogue and its leadership. In chapter 1, verse 29, Jesus leaves the synagogue and enters the house of Simon and Andrew, where he heals Simon's mother-in-law. In chapter 2, verse 1, Mark notes that Jesus is at home, at home, interesting phrase, when the paralytic is brought to him. In chapter 2, verse 15, Mark tells us that in his house, another interesting phrase, in his house, Christ's house, Christ is reclined at the table interacting with tax collectors and sinners as the Jewish scribes are alarmed. You can go on and on here, 3.20 and 7.17. In the second section of Mark's gospel, we have an incredible connection in anticipation of Christ's quotation of Isaiah 56, 7, here in eleven seventeen. After Christ heals the man's mute son who suffered from violent convulsions since childhood, he enters, it says, the text says, he enters the house and the disciples ask why they could not drive out the unclean spirit in the boy. Do you remember Jesus' answer in that context? Why they couldn't cast out that unclean spirit in the boy? Because it can only be driven out by prayer. By prayer. He's seeing the connections. See the pattern of Mark's gospel. Jesus 
is central in terms of the house. You have the house imagery. And then you have with the house imagery the issue of prayer. In the first section of Mark's gospel, the house is replacing the Jewish synagogue. But now, in terms of our text that is in front of you this evening, this morning, <laughs> I'll figure out where we are. <laughs> in terms of this morning, the third and final section in Mark's gospel, Christ's house is replacing the Jewish temple. You see? Mark is mapping out clearly to his Gentile audience a powerful message of good news even unto them in Jesus Christ. The history of revelation in the person and work of Christ have moved them into a, the powerful and authoritative presence of sacred and reverent prayer. A place where the temporal temple in Israel's history has been transformed into Christ's person and sanctuary in heaven where Christ as my house the true and final temple of God is the house of prayer for all the nations Christ as the eternal high priest is seated in his sanctuary, interceding for his people. Yes, Christ has offered himself as the temple tax, canceling the debt for our sin. Indeed, our ransom payment for the debt of our sin has been bought with a price the price of his cleansing blood and righteousness on our behalf. And now, our final and true temple house has ascended to the right hand of the Father, who in Paul's words prays without ceasing. Don't miss that without ceasing for his church and for his children. If you think no one's praying for you, Jesus is. Without ceasing for you. By faith, are you seeing how the kingdom of God, the good news, is coming violently in the person of Christ? The incident before you has nothing to do 
with Jesus and all the popular, popular interpretations of this text. I saw them ad nauseum over the last couple of weeks. This is Jesus, the insurrectionist, <laughs> the political zealot. This is Jesus setting up his own coup. His action here is solely, is solely his because he alone ushers his people into the final, into the glorious heavenly sanctuary as his own person constantly prays for each of us. For each of you. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Jesus is praying constantly for you who have faith in him. Trust his prayers on your behalf. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, What a blessing it is that we do not assemble by thy spirit with a spirit of apostasy and barrenness. We assemble in the true temple who is a person who has personal relationship with each of us, his children, the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask, O oh Lord, that we would continually understand what it means that he himself is looking over us and praying for us in terms of our eternal security. Those who truly believe and repent in the gospel. We ask your continual steadfastness in our lives. In Christ's name, amen.